This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to our first program of 2014. I believe this is our 601st show. And since number 600 apparently took place over the break, I'm not sure how we're going to celebrate uh, our cumulative accomplishment, but uh, I don't know, we'll we'll think of something. It is always incredibly difficult this particular time of year to secure a lot of guests. People are, after all, busy skiing on vacation or being out of town to visit the family or whatever. But that's okay, because on today's program, we need to go take a look back at those whom we lost in the past year and commemorate many of their lives, which I think we'll do in our second segment today. So we will start today's program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. The date being the 2nd of January. It was on January 2nd in 1492 that the Kingdom of Granada fell to the combined Christian forces of Ferdinand and Isabella. The Moors lost their last Islamic foothold in Spain. Lucky for Christopher Columbus, when he showed up at the Spanish court... (laughs) Trying to convince the king and queen that he had a shortcut to Asia, they were looking to celebrate and figured, ah, what the heck. And so it was that the fall of Granada led rather directly to the Pinta, the Nina, and the Santa Maria. On January 2nd in 1882, John D. Rockefeller formed the Standard Oil Trust, the first sanctioned monopoly in America. January 2nd in 1967, movie actor Ronald W. Reagan was sworn in as governor of California. The previous November, he beat Jerry Brown's dad, Edmund G. Brown Sr., better known as Pat. It was on January 2nd in 1964 that U.S. President Richard Milhouse Nixon signed the federal law forcing states to set maximum speed limits of 55 miles an hour. And although Nixon would resign the following August, we were stuck with the 55-mile-an-hour limit for several decades after that, causing this correspondent to refer to it as Nixon's revenge. And here's an item that I think I should quote directly from uh, the source of most of these references, the History Channel's Today in History, a day-by-day review of world events. And in in the sidebar entry for this date is noted the detente was reversed in 1980. To quote our reference book, in response to the December 1979 Soviet military intervention into Afghanistan, President Jimmy Carter requests that the United States Senate postpone action on the SALT II nuclear weapons treaty and recalls the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union on this day. These actions indicated that the U.S.-Soviet relationship was severely damaged by the Russian action in Afghanistan and that the age of detente had ended. What I find most incredibly curious about this entry is the admission by Zbigniew Brzezinski, many years I think after they wrote this book, that oh yeah, our intelligence forces were doing their best to quote destabilize unquote Afghanistan, hoping that the Soviets would invade, thus taking the bait and then bogging them down in their own Vietnam. So it's rather strange to note that the same hawkish people that were looking to bog the Soviets down and ruined detente, and perhaps while they were at it, get us to not sign the SALT II nuclear weapons treaty, were pretty much the same people that 
got us involved in our very own quagmire in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan, a couple of decades after this. Although this cost the Soviet Union dearly, their feudal war in Afghanistan, and some say contributed to the demise of the USSR. The American war in Afghanistan is now stretching into what? It's, let's see, let's do the math on this. It's 2013. We went in in the fall of 2001. So it's 11 years and counting, and we're talking about getting out at the end of 2014. Because for absolutely no good reason, some people think we need to stick around. But let us not dwell on that. Let's instead note in our musical entry for this date, it was on January 2nd in 1941, that the Andrews sisters recorded the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy for Decca Records. The song became a classic World War II hit, and decades later, Bette Midler was able to uh, make it work for her. Oh, and we usually don't cite birthdays on this date, but one of our heroes, I think, is worthy of citation. It was on January 2nd in 1920, that Isaac Asimov, the legendary author of wonderful science books and also uh, some notable science fiction, was born in Russia. We're very sad that Isaac Asimov died too soon in general and died too soon in particular for us to ever have recorded an interview with him for this program. All right, our quote of the day, and I really do like this one, comes from Aldous Huxley, who once said, Sons have always a rebellious wish to be disillusioned by that which charmed their fathers. Sad to say, I think there's great truth in that. Our quip of the day comes from Michael Dell, who said, if you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Conan O'Brien, who noted last month, President Obama shook hands with Cuban dictator Raul Castro, or, as Fox News reported it, foreign communist shakes hands with the leader of Cuba. Our anecdote comes from the life of Henry Ford. Asked once why he visited subordinates in their offices rather than summoning them to his, Ford said, I go to them to save time. I found I can leave the other fellow's office a lot quicker than I can get him to leave mine. Our stat of the day is $187.6 million. This was the estate of an elderly retiree in Seattle named Jack McDonald. McDonald was a former attorney living in this convalescent home, apparently collecting coupons, rarely bought new clothes, rather frugal person. <laughs> he astonished people when he passed away at age 98 when revealing he had this remarkable sum, almost $190 million, which he willed to charity. He apparently had played the stock market for decades and clearly pretty well. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week a few weeks back for the financial cabal that runs this country, also known as the Federal Reserve, which celebrated its 100th birthday. We really should talk about the Federal Reserve on this program, except that it's fiendishly hard to understand on many levels. And I'm afraid that if we tried it, we might be cited by the National Transportation Safety Board for the auto accidents that would ensue as people fell asleep at the wheel. 
course, that's if we focused in on some of the mundane blah, blah, blah of the economics of it. If we got into some of the juicy politics involved in this organization, it could be pretty lively. We'll think about it. We've got a whole year ahead of us, don't we? We can probably do a whole hour show on its origins alone. And it was, on the other hand, a, a bad week a few weeks back for Bob Dylan. With the news that he may be charged with inciting racial hatred in France because of a remark equating Croats to Nazis. Apparently last year, Dylan said in an interview with the French edition of Rolling Stone, if you've got a slave master or clan in your blood, blacks can sense that. Just like Jews can sense Nazi blood, and the Serbs can sense Croatian blood. Noted The Week magazine, a fascist Croatian regime did collaborate with the Nazis during World War II, and a few Croats were responsible for atrocities in the Yugoslav Wars in the 1990s. But it's rather unclear which era Dylan was referring to. Evidently, it's a Croat group that has brought the legal action, saying it wants the legendary singer to apologize for conflating all Croats with war criminals. Now, it just so happens on this program that our plumbing correspondent is of Croatian extraction. We'll have to put the question to him about uh, what he thinks about Bob Dylan's belief that the Serbs consents Croatian blood. We're pretty sure Bob Dylan has said dumber things, we just can't think of when. You'll also have to ask our aviation correspondent, Captain Vladimir Zerovica, about this. He's of Serbian extraction, and uh, I, I just wasn't aware that he had an ability to sense Croatian blood. We'll check with him on that one. <laughs> One thing we're pretty sure we will not do is run this past a Serbian and a Croatian in the same room at the same time, because we're pretty sure we don't want to be spilling any Serbian or Croatian blood, questioning about whether anyone can sense it. And um, it was an ugly week for, I think, just a lot of things with this item. According to the Financial Times last month, Remington Outdoor Company, the manufacturer of the Bushmaster rifle, which was used to kill 26 people in the Newtown shootings, has seen its earnings soar 52% over the past year as gun enthusiasts flocked to buy a weapon they feared the government would ban. Good God. And uh, we think it was probably both a bad and ugly week for California citizens with this little blurb, which cheerfully appeared in the Sacramento Bee, piece by Jim Miller which is that Bill Lockyer, California state treasurer, has taken a part-time job with a law firm in Irvine. Yes, I guess he's got some spare time on his hand, being the job of state treasurer, I guess, evidently, is just so darn easy. But noted Mr. Miller, with a year left in his term, California's top fiscal official has taken a job with the Boston-based Brown Rudnick LLP, which announced... California State Treasurer will be, quote, of counsel, end quote, in the firm's recently opened Irvine office. In an interview last week, Lockyer said he's looking forward to the Brown-Rudnick work, but emphasized that his treasurer's duties come first. Well, we certainly hope so. The treasurer's office declined to disclose Lockyer's pay rate at Brown-Rudnick. Doesn't this strike you as a little odd, dear listener? Elected officials are taking part-time jobs. I know. I mean, I know things are tough. But isn't there a potential conflict of interest here? And I, I know, I know. The idea of a politician being involved in a conflict of interest. Shocking, shocking concept. But at least they could be a little discreet about it, don't you think? Anyway, 
We haven't uh, quoted from the Ask Maryland section for, for many months, and I think it's high time we did so. Marilyn Vos Savant is reputed to be the smartest person in the world. Maybe she is. We do enjoy her answers to questions every so often. Someone wrote many months ago to ask Marilyn, moralizing aside, can you give me any persuasive reason why my friends and I shouldn't cheat at school whenever we're sure we're not going to get caught? Marilyn replied, aside from what may happen if you get caught anyway, possibly the best reason not to cheat is that doing so may make it appear that you are more proficient in a subject than you actually are. This will lead you into increasingly deeper water without knowing how to swim well enough. As you move into academic areas or courses that are over your head, because you didn't master the foundations for whatever reason, such as not studying as much as you should have, you will find yourself in academic trouble that no amount of cheating can solve. It's a very practical answer, isn't it? How about, how about also the fact that it's wrong? But then again, the, the questioner did ask, can you give me any persuasive reason why my friends and I shouldn't cheat? I got a feeling that Anonymous from Dallas wouldn't have found, because it's wrong, to be very persuasive. Let's talk about a few interesting science stories. We had the Discover Magazine Top 100 uh, Science Stories of 2013 and only mentioned a couple of them. Number one science story, according to Discover, was the fact that uh, on Mars, the Curiosity rover is finding some signs compatible with ancient life. They haven't found ancient life, but they found some indications that, uh, well, they've, they've confirmed what we've known for some time. Uh, Mars was once a much more friendly place with a thicker atmosphere and lots of flowing water on the surface, uh, as opposed to the dry, dead-looking world we see today. We're pretty sure that in 2014, there's going to be a lot of good science streaming back from these uh, rovers. Uh, not just the Curiosity, but the Opportunity rover is still alive after something like a decade now on Mars. That's a decade of Earth years. It's been on. It's been. It's been. Uh, it's gone through six Martian winters, I think, at this point. If uh, anyway, we certainly hope that when Comet C slash 2013A1 passes, uh, as we mentioned on last week's program, half the distance between the Earth and our moon, uh, past Mars, uh, come October, that it doesn't, uh, you know, take out our <laughs> little dune buggies. I'll tell you the one item from this uh, list of top news stories uh, in science, uh, well, number three just is a little nerve-wracking. It shows a chart based on uh, the air gathered from ice cores, I'm, I'm pretty certain, going back half a million years, correlating half million years of time with our atmosphere's CO2 levels. Atmospheric CO2 is varied between about 180 parts per million and 300 parts per million over the past half million years. That's up till the 20th century, when all of a sudden our atmospheric CO2 levels broke through the 300 parts per million level. And now in the 21st century have hit 400 parts per million, something unprecedented over the past half million years and possibly unprecedented for the past five to ten million years maybe a lot longer we hope in the year to come 2014 we'll get serious about this story number four which isn't exactly a science story although it is it's i guess more of a technology story was titled the never-ending end of privacy the article specifically cites the introduction of Google Glass, the wearable computer with a head-mounted display that lets users record everything in front of them. 
This may make personal surveillance nearly ubiquitous, to which we add, we hope not. We will, by the way, be watching the court case down in San Diego, uh, set for trial, I guess, uh, this month, involving a Temecula woman who pled guilty last October for charges of speeding and distracted driving for wearing Google Glass. As reported in the LA Times last month, Cecilia Abade, 44, is believed to be the first driver in the nation to have received a ticket for wearing Google's computer in eyewear. Google Glass is not yet on the market, but Abadi was an explorer, quote-unquote, chosen to try out the product. She was stopped by the CHP on October 19th while driving north of Interstate 15 in northern San Diego County. The officer issued a ticket as a violation of Vehicle Code 27602 that makes it a violation to drive a vehicle, quote, if a television receiver, a video monitor, or a television or video screen, unquote, is visible. Abadi's attorney, William Considine, told reporters that Abadi would testify the glasses were not on while she was driving. <laughs> Good ploy. He also plans to argue that the code does not cover Google Glass because it was written before Google Glass was invented. Said her lawyer, we're going to be arguing that Miss Abadi's case is unique. It's different, the first of its kind. And there is nothing illegal to be wearing Google Glass while driving. I think we're going to have to side with the authorities on this one. Sounds like some, you know, confused legal logic. You know, first of all, I'm innocent, and second of all, I promise I won't do it again. So we're talking about bad technology. We need to visit this whole idea of, uh, of having drones deliver your packages. I think I mentioned my trip. In fact, I know I mentioned my trip to the, the last Giants game of the year, and behind the crowd was one of these uh, drones with, like, eight little motors on it and a camera flying above the crowd, going back and forth. The thing looks to be substantially bigger than a laptop, and it's flying. A fleet of these things coming down your local street, trying to drop something off on your front porch. Well, it, it's just not a good idea. Aside from the invasion of the privacy, it's going to have to have a camera on it. It's going to have to be interacted with somebody flying the thing. I mean, it'd be great to be, you know, nude sunbathing in your backyard as a drone comes flying over to drop off some Netflix, wouldn't it? And suppose, you know, as it's swooping in to deliver that package, you have it to be popping out the front door. I don't know. This is one idea we just hope doesn't get airborne. But uh, back to science stories for last year. We're still debating about this whole thing of whether Voyager 1 really is an interstellar space or not. The scientists seem quite uncertain about this for the longest time. And all of a sudden, they decided to announce... NASA did, after other scientists did, that, oh, yeah, 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 we're out there. We're in interstellar space now. We'll revisit that one in 2014. We also got a kick out of story number 11, the discovery of the Earth's biggest volcano, which nobody had noticed before. Of course, the reason is it's underwater. The Tamu Massif, an in underwater volcano about a third of the way from Japan to Hawaii, is by far the largest volcano on planet Earth. The reason we hadn't noticed it before was that it was assumed all these giant lava flows came from several volcanoes. In fact, they all came from one. Although, curiously, it does not rank as the largest volcano in the solar system. It's only apparently got 75% the volume of Mars's gigantic Olympus Mons. So it only gets the silver in this category. All right, let's close with one other item here. Fascinating science story. We talked about it on the show, but I think I'll just quote from uh, Discover. 
in their look back on it. They called they called this the 15th biggest news story of last year. So the magazine, gastric bypass surgery, in which the stomach is stitched into a tiny pouch, has long been seen as a last resort for the dangerously obese. Doctors attributed rapid post-surgical weight loss to reduced hunger and restricted eating resulting from the smaller stomach. But new evidence suggests, suggests weight loss may result when the procedure alters the types of microbes in the gut. Scientists reached this conclusion by transferring microbes from bypass-treated obese mice to a group of lean mice raised in sterile conditions that left them with no intestinal bacteria at all. Two weeks after the transfer, recipient mice had lost considerable weight. Another group that received microbes from obese mice in a placebo group undergoing surgery without gastric bypass stayed the same. The implications of this are pretty earth-shaking. We'll continue to follow this in the year to come, but let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Evett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.